Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Matthias was a little nervous. He'd seen Jesus heal cripples and lepers and blind men, and even raise the dead, but he'd never actually done it himself. He'd never actually cast out a demon. And what if he prayed and nothing happened? But Peter just charged ahead into the town of Magdala. Of the 70 disciples Jesus had sent out in twos, it was just Matthias's luck that he got stuck with Peter. Well, at least Peter would be bold, and maybe Matthias could just sort of let Peter do most of the talking, and then if nothing happened, uh, he could just kind of stand there and commiserate with Peter. So he followed Peter into the town square without even consulting Matthias. Peter jumped up on a low wall surrounding the fountain and started shouting out, People of Magdala, you've all heard of Jesus of Nazareth, the great rabbi who's been healing the sick and casting out demons. He's coming here soon. He sent us to tell you, and he's given us the power to heal the sick and cast out demons. So bring us your sick now, and we will heal them. And Peter jumped back down. That should do it. They'll bring a few, and when we heal them, they'll bring more. Matthias wasn't so optimistic. How can you be so sure? What if no one's healed? Matthias, you're a good man, but you've got to worry less. Jesus would never send us out with these instructions if he wasn't going to heal people through us. Don't you get it? All these months we've been watching him, and he's been preparing us to do this. Yeah, but what if, shh, here comes a mother with her sick son. Have faith. God won't let us down. So Matthias stopped talking. He thought the mother looked worried, but also skeptical. Her boy was missing a front tooth, so he's probably around six. And he had this left side of his face just had some open sores and this awful infection and some scar tissue. He was badly disfigured. What's your name, asked Peter, Jonathan? Well, Jonathan, the great rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, sent us to pray for you and heal you. Would that be all right? Yes, please, all the kids make fun of me. Can you really heal me? I've seen Jesus heal lepers and cripples and blind men. I've seen him raise the dead. God can heal anyone, and Jesus is his prophet. Do you believe in God and the prophets, Jonathan? Yes, I study the Torah with the other boys. I'm not as good at memorizing as some, but I try hard. Let me tell you a secret, Jonathan. When I was your age, I was one of the worst students in the synagogue. And now I'm a disciple of the greatest, most famous rabbi in the land. God looks at the heart, Jonathan, not the head. Are you ready for us to pray? This is my friend Matthias. He has been following Jesus for almost as long as I have. I want you to think about how big and powerful God is as Matthias prays for your face to heal. Matthias? And this caught Matthias completely by surprise. He'd been sure that he could kind of hang back and Peter would do the hard part, but there was no help for it now. He put his right hand on the boy's head and raised his left hand in the sky and said, Lord God, our heavenly father, we ask you to heal Jonathan's face. Make it smooth and perfect like a baby's. Make it strong so this infection never comes back. We ask you to heal him as your prophet Jesus of Nazareth promised you would. Amen. Peter took Jonathan and kind of looked at his face. Matthias looked over Peter's shoulder. Nothing was happening. Matthias' heart, Matthias's heart started to sink, and he began to look away, kind of in embarrassment, and kind of assess the mood of the crowd. Look, Peter said to the mother. Matthias turned back and looked. The boy's sores were drying up. They were going from red to kind of a 
brown like a scab to this translucent white very quickly. Jonathan, rub your face, said Peter. And when Jonathan rubbed his face, all of the old skin sloughed off and his hand was rubbing smooth, clean skin. The boy's mother yelled, praise God. She started crying and grabbed Matthias' sleeve and kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Soon people were streaming into the plaza with all of their sick. You take this side, Matthias, I'll take that side. That afternoon, Matthias healed people of fevers and injuries. He even healed a cripple and cast out several demons. When everyone had been prayed for, little Jonathan's father arrived and insisted that they stay the night in their home. And as Matthias lay down on a simple mat on the floor that night, completely exhausted, he thought to himself, that was the best day ever. Now, of course, this is a fictional version of what it was probably like when Jesus sent 70 of his disciples out two by two and told them to heal. They healed. They cast out demons. They came back super excited that they had been able to do that. But we don't realize just how unusual this was in the ancient world. Healing and casting out demons, those kinds of things were reserved for highly trained priests. And that was especially true among the pagans who worshiped idols that You'd come and you'd pay a priest, he'd have fancy clothes on, and he would then say some kind of an incantation in a language you probably didn't understand, maybe sprinkle some goat's blood or something, and that's how you did these kinds of things. So this is a big change. When Jesus selected simple men, mostly fishermen, who spoke in simple words like Jesus, and they healed people and cast out demons. Now, after the resurrection, Peter went into the temple one time and he healed a lame beggar. And they get, he and John get hauled before the religious leaders and they're surprised. And we read in Acts 4, he says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Jesus revolutionized the way ministry is done. He trained just normal people in their own language without anything especially fancy like special clothes or special hats or bells or incense. This was remarkable. Other religions do not turn over the ministry to common folk. For centuries... After that, the ministry was in the hands of common folk. But eventually, it again became professionalized and in the hands of priests who performed in Latin, which was unintelligible to at least 95% of the people, but it sounded very powerful and magical. One of the principles from those early centuries that was renewed and refreshed by the Reformation was what we call the priesthood of all believers. Now, we're in the seventh message commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We've been looking at what we call the five solas. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. Sola Fide, by faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Solus Christus, through Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. And now, the priesthood of all believers. Now, there's some more, but those are the most prominent ones. And there are many passages in the New Testament to support the idea of the priesthood of all believers. We're just going to look at a couple of them. These two are from the second chapter of Peter. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then down at verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. See, in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders, the priesthood was only for descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And they would represent the people to God. They would intercede for the people. And one day a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, which was God's actual presence. But Jesus gives his followers the privilege of being priests. And not just one day a year, but that we're to go in hopefully every day of the year right into God's presence. I'm going to use this, the King James Version for the Hebrews 4 passage that I love. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you do that? Because we've been completely forgiven, adopted into God's family, we have the privilege of being priests who not once a year, but every day go boldly into God's presence. Our youngest son is now 21, but I remember when our kids were little and I would come home and I would open the door and say, I'm home. And I'd hear, daddy's home. And then they'd attack me and we'd wrestle and stuff. And it was really fun. I could tell that they were glad I was home. And basically that's what God is saying to you to go boldly into his presence, to be like a toddler that, that he can tell you want to be there with him, that you like him, that you love him, that you want to be his child. You can, you, can, you, can have a, you can talk with him intimately. You can pour out your heart to him. You can tell him what's on your heart. You can also intercede for other people. That's what a priest does. Each ribbon, as I tell you often, each ribbon on the wreaths in the room, they represent answers to prayer by you guys. And there's all kinds of different answers, people being healed, people getting jobs, relationships being restored. But obviously, many of you go boldly into the presence of God regularly, and you pour out your heart's desires, and you also plead for others. We see lots of answered prayer around here. So how do you feel when God answers a prayer? It feels good, doesn't it? It feels really good. Can you imagine somebody like Matthias? Matthias, by the way, he becomes the the disciple that takes Judas's place in Acts 1, but Someone like that who was sent out as part of those 70, 35 different pairs that went out, and all of a sudden they're casting out demons and healing people. It must have felt just amazing. And God gives us that privilege when he answers our prayers, and it just feels wonderful. So don't miss out on the privilege of being a priest, of asking God for your heart's desires, of also interceding for other people. Your prayers impact the world. The Bible's very clear that your prayers impact the world. We don't, we don't understand why some of them don't come out the way we want, but, the, but some of them do. And it's pretty exciting. And obviously, just from the prayer wreaths, a lot of prayers are being answered. Would you open up an app or a Bible to Romans chapter 12? It's on page 948 in the Pew Bible. Because another part of being a priest is that we receive a spiritual gift from God. And it's a gift that we're given to give away. So we're going to read one of the lists. There are a number in the New Testament about spiritual gifts. I'm going to start at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, 
and the members do not, have, do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if serving, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, there are seven gifts listed here. There are a number of different lists in the New Testament, and none of them are exactly the same. And some people have tried to just come up with a way to put them all together and understand and make sure that they've kind of got the spiritual gifts locked down tight in their understanding. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's, it's probably best just to not consider any of the lists to be exhaustive and to just take them at their face value and what they obviously tend to mean is probably what they mean and just be open to whatever gifts God wants for you. God's doing miracles all over this planet and he's still doing all the things that he did in the past so be open and, and see what he'll do. But above all, use the gift or gifts that God gives you to serve others because those are going to be your best days when you see God working through you to help other people. Now, some of you may find that people often get healed when you pray for them. That might be your gifting. Some of you may teach with great clarity. Some of you may be great leaders or encouragers. Some of you may just have this sense of God's direction often, and when you step out in faith and follow that, you see God do marvelous things. It's fine to experiment and see where your gifting lies and what God wants you to do. But whatever it is, trust God and follow, and you'll get to do wonderful things with him. Being a priest to others is one of the greatest privileges that we have, serving others with the gifts God has given us. And it's part of the adventure of following Jesus. So if your life is not feeling like an adventure, then maybe you need to step out in faith more. Ask God to show you how to use your gifts to serve the people in your life. Now, Christians in the early church found lots of ways not only to use their spiritual gifts, but also just their, their normal gifts. Someone destitute would come to their door, they'd feed them, even if they had to go without food themselves. When plagues came, they nursed people back to health, sometimes dying themselves. At one point in time, we read in the book of Acts that there was a famine in the region around Jerusalem. So the Gentile Christians took up a collection and sent it to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem which was really cool because the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had sent them the Apostle Paul who had brought them the gospel. So they really owed them a great deal and they were glad to be able to help them out in their time of need. Now we have an opportunity to do something similar. There have been a number of tragic events in recent weeks. Hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, shootings in Las Vegas, and now the fires north of here. Many of you probably don't know him, but one of the greatest contributors to Carmel Presbyterian Church was a man named Dale Flowers. Dale was a very loved associate pastor here for many years through some really difficult transitions. Humanly speaking, he was the glue that kept CPC going, and uh, so he'd be here for us today. So even if you don't know him, there's a sense in which we all owe him. Now, for many years, Dale has been and now is the senior pastor at the First Presbyterian Church 
in Santa Rosa. So I called him and emailed him this week. He emailed me right, right back, and he wrote that they have at least 38 of their attendees who have lost their homes. And they had another dozen in the middle of the week that um, they were waiting to hear. Their church has set up a fund. The advantage of when a church sets up a fund, it's local. They know everybody. It's locally administrated. And similar, similar to Paul receiving an offering from Corinth and other churches and taking it to Jerusalem, we're suggesting that we together give to the fund for the fire relief in Santa Rosa and bless them. So... Um, there are other things you can do as well, and I don't know if you can read these words, but there's like six different things, and there's flyers that are out on the table, but you, know, you can offer to provide housing, you can go up there and serve, you can give a vehicle or foster a pet, you can, somebody else who's doing one of those things, you can help them, you can also give generously, and eventually even go up and help try to repair houses, but that's all on a flyer, and um, it's very easy to do. If you would like to donate, just write your check to CPC, put in the memo line, fire relief or fire fund or something like that. And we'll periodically you know, put that together and send a check for all of it, 100% of it. Um, it just is a, and you can always, always send it in by yourself. It's just, it's a very beautiful thing for one church to sense another church uh, really helping them out. Now, financially, we've been a little bit behind here at the church, the regular budget. So what we always say when these things happen is we hope that, you know, you can give to the fire relief in addition to your regular generous giving. Otherwise, we'll just go down like that. So we all just kind of dig a little deeper. Now, after Paul had told them in Corinth about the opportunity to help the Jewish Christians, he then wrote, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings. So I hope you'll think and pray about that, see what God wants you to do. I'm now going to switch gears and take a few minutes to cover a different topic from the Reformation, and it's the topic of the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is what you see, and I don't mean the building, it's the people. When you look around right now in this room, you're the visible church. It's whoever shows up. Uh, but Martin Luther and John Calvin realized that not everyone who showed up for the visible church actually believed in Jesus the way the New Testament describes. And once again, I'm trying to get you to memorize the four C's with, you know, we, New Testament belief, it includes believing the correct content with conviction, committing ourselves to Christ, and then if we have those, it always results in change, inner change. The visible church is comprised of everyone who shows up. The invisible church is comprised of those who truly believe because we can't see in people's hearts. Well, don't people know whether or not they truly believe? Jesus didn't seem to think so. He, he, he said in the, Sermon on the, Mount, not on the in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. It sounds like people can even be casting out demons and healing others and still not actually have 
the biblical faith that puts them into a personal relationship with Christ. Now, this has always sounded extremely serious to me. I hope it does to you. Let me give you some context from the Reformation period, why this whole issue came up. Because the issue of the visible church and the invisible church wasn't really on anybody's radar screen before the Reformation. In the early 1500s, if you lived in a Catholic country, most of Western Europe, all of Western Europe, then you'd been baptized as an infant, and you went to confession and participated in the Mass once a year around Easter, and you were considered a Christian. But their theology was such that you could not be certain that you were good enough. Your salvation was not guaranteed. That was what terrified Martin Luther, even as he tried to be really, really good. If you wanted to be an especially good Christian like Martin Luther, then you became a priest or you became a nun. But the vast majority of people are what scholars sometimes call sort of passive Christians. They would do the appropriate things once around Easter and and go to other um, ceremonies. But they might get drunk or brawl or commit adultery, but they considered themselves to be Christians. Now, the more devout priests would try to persuade their parishioners to behave, to be more moral. And their theology, the part that scared Martin Luther was that you had to do that in order to kind of get rid of the original sin in your heart. And if you lived moral lives and did good, that was supposed to help get rid of sin. But what did most people do? They just ignored the priests. They were not as terrified as Martin Luther. Maybe they just figured life was tough enough. They didn't need any more on their plate. They take their chances with purgatory. We don't know. But when Martin Luther and the other reformers said we are saved through faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, because we cannot earn any part of it, this concerned the Catholic leaders because they figured if it's by grace alone, then people are going to be even worse than they already are. Now, since for the reformers, salvation was now received through faith, they realized they couldn't see a person's faith. So they developed the idea of the visible and the invisible church. The invisible church, the true believers, and they felt that they would love Jesus enough that they would actually want to become like him. Well, it actually didn't turn out like anybody thought it was going to. Some decades later, the Council of Trent put in a whole bunch of what we call the Counter-Reformation some um, improvements in in Roman Catholicism. The priests got more education and became more devout and less immorality. And and people kind of stepped up their game. And in in many ways, from the Roman Catholic uh, Church's point of view, that was a real watershed. And many things became better at that point. However, the morality and the visible outward devotion of all the different Protestant groups in general actually ended up exceeding the Catholics. In other words, they lived more moral lives as a rule, which was surprising to the Catholic leaders. It didn't come out how they had feared. Now, the Protestant pastors tended to be more pushy and meddlesome about the moral life of their parishioners. There's this this anecdote. It's it's true. Um, After decades of a certain part of, of, of Germany mostly being Lutheran, people who hadn't been Roman Catholics for years, some of the old timers would reminisce and long for the good old days 
because they were so tired of the Lutheran pastors being in their face about how they were living that they longed for the good old days with the Roman Catholic priests that were more relaxed. Even after decades. You feel that way about me sometimes? Now, eventually, you may know that the Puritans and also the Anabaptists, which were were kind of separatists, they were the most strict of the different groups. And when people were morally messing up, they would confront them and even expel them from church if they didn't repent. They were trying to make the visible church and the invisible church overlap as much as possible. So ever since the Reformation, this concept of the visible church and the invisible church has stirred the pot. It's tough for pastors. It's tough for elders. It's tough for anybody to know what to do with it. I've heard it said that when you get to heaven, we will be very surprised at some of the people who made it. And very surprised at some who didn't. And that seems to capture Jesus' statement that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord, even if they do impressive ministry, will make it. He also says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So the Apostle Peter writes, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. See, as your pastor, I would love it if you just were completely certain of your salvation. That not only did you, you believe, but you know you believe. And you know you've been adopted into God's family. And you know that you can walk boldly into his presence and you spend time with him and you have that kind of a relationship and you see the four C's. You, it's correct content and conviction and commitment and you can see that he's changing you and so you can be convinced. And a good book to study on this is First John. We've mentioned it before. It lists these different kinds of things that we call the marks of the Christian. So you can be completely confident. And by the way, if you're here and you haven't ever even claim to decide to follow Jesus. That, we're so glad you're here and thinking about that and maybe, maybe checking it out and seek, seeking the truth. This isn't about you. This is about the visible and invisible church people who think they believe but might be deceived according to Jesus. Corey Tinboom was a middle-aged woman living in the Netherlands during World War II. She and her family were Christians And they helped Jews to escape from the Nazis. But not everybody in their church helped. And so that concerned her. She didn't see why some of the Christians from church wouldn't also step up and do that. How could they be Christians and not help? And so she asked her father about it, and he said something that I will never forget. He said, just because a mouse lives in the cookie jar, that doesn't make him a cookie. It's very hard to know the visible church and the invisible church. But may God give you certainty that you are part of his family. That you may be filled with the Spirit. That you may use your spiritual gifts to serve. And as you see God working through you, that can draw you close to him and convince you that you're his. That you can give what he's given you away. And that that will not just be the best day for you, but really the best life you could possibly have. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or 
any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.